Welcome to a special one-off Trap Eon podcast. I'm Mark. I'm Conrad. I'm Jason. And I'm John. Gentlemen, fate draws us back together to discuss the latest James Bond movie, No Time to Die, the final film to star Daniel Craig as Bond. Just a word for our listeners, please do not listen any further. If you have not seen the film yet, we'll be talking about the whole movie, so there'll be loads of spoilers. So please be warned, this isn't like a normal Bond movie. The spoilers are much more significant. So hopefully you've come back only once you've watched the movie now. <gasps> wasn't, uh, so, wasn't it brilliant at the end where Thanos came out of the portal? <laughs> <laughs> and there was Pierce Brothnan and Timothy Dalton. The, uh, I think the multiverse will be in the next movie. <laughs> that was a lovely introduction, Mark. Had you written it down? I have, yeah. It was, it, was like a, it was like a scrolling sort of credit title thing from a Star Wars film or something. That was beautifully done. The opening crawl for the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a dark time for the regressive forces of uh, fandom. <laughs> yeah, it's very much the best bit that I do is the introduction because it's a bit that I write down. <laughs> So I thought we could start by gauging where everybody is on this one. Um, so just a sort of a brief little note about how much you like the movie and where it stands for you in the Craig era overall and indeed how you feel about the Craig era. So for me, I've seen the film twice. I absolutely love it. I think it's the best movie since Casino Royale for me. The best Bond movie since Casino Royale, to qualify that. Uh, how about you, Conrad? Um yeah, I think um, I, I really enjoyed it. I felt like I really wanted it to be good. For me, the Craig era, I, I mean, I love Daniel Craig as Bond. I think he's fantastic. Um, it's worth saying for me now, I'm not a hardcore Bond fan, so uh, but I, I love Daniel Craig's era. For me, it's been sort of game of two halves. There's two films I loved, two I didn't. So I really needed this film just to tip on the side of good, and it did. So overall pleased, with a few reservations, but... Interesting, Jason. Uh, yeah, I absolutely loved it. Um, with one caveat, which I'm sure we'll get to at the end, um, I've loved the Craig era. Um, I've lo- loved every really like Bond actor. To be quite honest, I'm not one of those who like makes a judgment as when someone's been cast. Casino Royale is in my top three Bond films of all time, um, and I don't feel too bad about you know Quantum of Solace and Spectre. Um, I'm probably one of the fair few people who actually prefers Spectre to Skyfall, controversially. Um, well, I do as well, and yeah, I think we are in the minority on that. Yeah, and Quantum of Solace, I think, is a cracking Bond film, but unfortunately it's just edited to within an inch of its life, and it could easily do with an extra 10 minutes. And I think had it not been edited like like it was, um, it would be regarded a lot, lot better because it's got a very, very good plot. And, uh, you know, Skyfall, as I said, on my recent movie marathon that I tweeted about when I did all the Bond films, it kind of like, that's the one that is a Bond film, but not a Bond film because it doesn't quite follow the formula of your typical Bond and like subverts the um, what you expect from a Bond film. And he's virtually an end film but with Bond as the supporting character whilst deconstructing his character so I was really really looking forward to what they were going to do with this one uh, yeah it was alright um, yeah <laughs> I loved it I, I, you know I'm, I'm, I'm of an I've got to be upfront. I'm of an age now where basically if I get a nice sit down really that's my expectations met so, you know, it's like since, since lockdown, um, 
you know, after the, the cinemas reopened, I have seen things that are arguably, objectively, not terribly, terribly good, but I've had a very good time with them. Um, now, this is different in that I went to see it and it was just, I think, objectively great. I mean, it's, it's kind of almost a shame that we all love it because um, I, I, I would quite like to hear dissenting voices because ba- basically everyone I know who's seen it um, from, you know, kind of Bond fans at my level to people who are just pretty casual about it think it's great. Um, and I, you know, I, I've heard very few dissenting voices, certainly, you know, kind of not ones that um, uh, sort of chime with me in any, any kind of meaningful way. I, I really like the uh, the Craig era. And yeah, like as with everyone, um, I, I think Casino Royale was just stunning. You know, it was that kind of riposte to the Bourne films, um, I, th- I think was, you know, kind of the fairly hackneyed way of looking at it when it came out. I, I, to my huge regret, I, I still haven't quite found a way into Quantum of Solace. I, I, I think there's the stuff in there that I really like, but yeah, I think it, it you know, it was Jason that was saying it's just, it, it, it's not terribly well assembled. And, I, you know, I know there are reasons for that. And that's, that's fair enough. I loved Skyfall. I with you guys. I thought Spectre was fucking brilliant. I, you know, I, I had such a great time. You know, I've got this history now of sort of going to see stuff at the cinema when it opens, like um, oh, John Carter or Gore Verbinski's Lone Ranger, and I go, oh fucking hell, that was amazing. And I come out and read the reviews. Go, oh, apparently I was wrong. You know, I, I, I thought I was having a tremendous time, was thoroughly entertained, but apparently I wasn't. And I, I you know, the, the, this is the, the this is what I'm getting with Spectre. There, there just seems to be a kind of massive um, the, the, the sort of movement against it, and I, I think it is to the filmmakers credit um that they haven't sort of capitulated you know in that kind of um star warsy kind of way um they, they've basically decided what they're doing they've pursued their agenda and just come up with you know a nearly three hour film that's got stuff about a virus during a pandemic and you know it's just it's just come out sensational is it you know it's like a proper beautiful film it's you know highly tooled it's funny it's clever it's interesting i i don't feel like it it dragged at all and it's a it's a great sort of end to an era and it's it, it you know it is an era in the way that i think all the other james bond films haven't been in that there is a sort of a, a continuity to it and i you know i hope we get on to talking about that um, because that's that's a new thing for Bond. You know, we've got now like basically a fifteen year story, fifteen year five movie story. Um, that's that's kind of unprecedented in James Bond, I, and I love seeing that. I love it when a franchise, particularly one that I'm fond of, uh, just goes off on one um, and and does something new. I find that terribly exciting. Uh, so yeah, as I say, it was all right. <laughs> I think just touching upon the whole Spectre thing, I think I think because Casino Royale was obviously like the reboot and this is the origin of Bond and then Quantum of Solace is, is essentially part two of that and then Skyfall did the whole thing of deconstructing his character and like, you know, was a, a, a much character piece. I think a lot of people probably 
didn't appreciate Spectre as much because Spectre is probably out of the five Bond films that Craig has done, is the one that you could put in that like box of being a typical Bond film. It has the typical tropes. It has the typical plot starts from with the pre-title sequence and goes through to, and it follows that template that Goldfinger established way back in '64. And I think that's probably one of the reasons. I think because we're now so like used to Bond doing sort of like different things in different movies and not sticking to that formula. I think that might be one of the reasons why people didn't take to Spectre as they did. I, I, yeah, that's that's a really good point. I, also, I think there is um, the, the, there's there's kind of like a consonance between uh, Spectre and Die Another Day, uh, the last Pierce Brosnan film, which which I also had a terrific time with, but apparently I was wrong and it's awful. Um, in that they sort of look back, you know, there's an awful lot of because I think. Uh, Die Another Day, good Lord, it's terribly difficult keeping these titles straight. Die Another Day was the 20th film, wasn't it? And it, it, yeah. just, it just had a lot of kind of looking back to previous films. So, there, you know, there were sort of joke references to previous gadgets and stuff like that. And I think Spectre did that as well by, you know, sort of, well, having Blofeld in as a character. Um, and, you know, just just harking back to a lot of Bond things, Bond films of previous years so you know it, it it wasn't like an entity in itself and it wasn't like a progressive thing it was slightly regressive um so you know i get that it, you know it's like the three doctors or, or the five doctors or you know day of the doctor or whatever it's nice when you get like a celebration of uh, a thing that celebrates its past but if that becomes normal then you've got like quite a stultified sort of a thing um, and it, you know, it's, it's kind of nice to, to get back to a narrative that's moving forward. So, you know, I, I guess the, the, there is a, a slight sort of element of stagnation to Spectre in the same way that there was to Die Another Day. But um, I mean, I, I just don't find that problematic. You know, for, films are different from other films. You know, you get what you get, and and you you don't have any control over that, but you do have control over how much you enjoy it. Yeah, and I think it was introducing those Spectre elements for a new generation, wasn't it? Um, so you've got, you know, Inspector at Blofeld's base was, instead of being in a volcano, it was in uh, a meteor crater and the the sort of the um, the mountaintop clinic where Madeline was working, a bit like a magic secret service and things. So it was sort of the, the Spectre sort of imagery and and uh, iconography, but, but put into the new... Uh, Bondinuity uh, for uh, <laughs> for fabulous word. Can we just never use it ever again? <laughs> well, <laughs> actually, when I did my James Bond blog, I tried to sort of uh, introduce that and ho- hope that it would fall into popular usage. And it hasn't, so I'm, I'm, I'm another punt now, just in case. <laughs> now's your now's your time. I, I just want to go back to your point, Jason, which I think is a really good one. I think, and I think, and I'd actually I'd like to find out where where all you. Um, sort of how you got into Bond and where you sit with it. Like I would sort of consider myself as generally, I've always been a sort of fairly casual uh, viewer of uh, of James Bond. So like I remember, I, I grew up in a sort of Roger Moore era, and I vividly remember being taken to see Moonraker. Um, you know that kind of uh, post Star Wars thing absolutely worked. Like my family were like, oh, it's got space in it, it's got James Bond in it. We took the family, so I was eight, so I went to see it, and I l- absolutely loved it. 
I went to see all of them at the cinema, I think until um, Living Daylight in 87. And then I didn't see, go to the cinema to see another Bond and didn't really think about him much after that. It seemed, you know, during the Pierce Brosnan era, I kind of drifted away as a you know, casual viewer. It just was like, you know, I just sort of moved on with it and it just wasn't one I kept up with. And um, it was Casino Royale that came along. I was At the time I was working for a film company, we used to get freebies for like screenings and stuff. Um, some of the screenings were like super glamorous premieres and stuff. And some of them were kind of... Um, you get tickets to a preview and they were just industry screenings. And the thing about them, they were on, they were in Leicester Square, but they were on like a Sunday morning at 10 o'clock, which was kind of a hard slot to kind of go and see a big blockbuster. But I remember thinking, oh, I'll go and, you know, I'd heard a lot about Daniel Craig and I thought, he's, you know, he's a good actor. Um, let's go and let's go and see this. And even though in my bleary hungover state at 10 in the morning, I went in and go, no, oh, yeah, let's just check this out. And within the first five minutes, I think by the end of those credits, I was like, so fully invested it was unbelievable i was like i i'm a hundred percent invested in this and um and casino royale has kind of gone on to be and i, I saw all the rest in the cinema and it sort of become increasingly into it um and then last year during lockdown the first thing i did was go out and buy a box set of all the bond films so i thought this will this will see us you know if i watch a movie every saturday night that'll see me through six months until this pandemic thing blows over and then i can go to the cinema and see you know new one um but i so we watched all of them and it like so i had a new new appreciation of them and then before no time to die came out i was like really excited Rewatched all the craigs and um and to be honest i think the thing i that's come like the thing that just keeps coming up for me is just how casino royale is not only like my favourite Bond film, it's my favourite Craig film, it's become one of my favourite all-time films. I actually think as a piece of cinema, it's a masterpiece. I just couldn't love it more. But um, that's sort of generally where I am. That's my sort of pedigree as a casual, but uh, Daniel Craig kind of made me a sort of nearly fan. Um, But I think I've probably got a more sort of general public view of these films. So for me, the experience is Casino Royale absolutely loved it and just loved it more each time so stoked to see quantum of solace and came away very disappointed because it seemed like it was very thin and there was nothing there for reasons that we all know we know why that is um skyfall i absolutely bloody loved it gave me you know there's a few things wrong with it there's one extremely thing wrong with it but maybe that later but i really generally like it and as a sort of member of the public i was like oh yeah it was kind of like the olympics it sort of it really dug into the whole thing about the queen and country and and that's where the M stuff came into it. So I really loved it. And um, Spectre, I really Spectre kind of started off well, but I think as a punter, I, what I found difficult about it, coming back to your point, Jason, was um, I think it was when it was like Blofeld in his narrow jacket with his white cat with James Bond tied to a chair, and I remember thinking, oh, this is oh no 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 oh no no I don't want this. This is like Austin Powers. This is what we kind of went away from. So I think I think I'm just bringing a general punter's view to it. Um, and so for, for, for to my eye, it seemed like it seemed kind of I think um, that that seemed kind of corny to me. And I was like, oh no, this is. I thought these new Bond films were supposed to be all kind of whatever. And I think in time, I, I sort of thought maybe that was something for fans. And I think that's something I want to ask you a lot about later to do with Blofeld because I think that's I'd be interested to know what you guys think. That was a long blurge, but that's I kind of want to know where you guys roughly fit in terms of hardcore fandom like mark i know you're a big bond fan yeah for me i i mean i think they were always on um your bank holidays and weekends and stuff so i was passingly familiar with them and then i'd have been about 15 when goldeneye came out that would be the first one that i saw at the cinema 
and I went back to see it almost immediately. Um, same sort of experience thing that, that you had with Casino Royale there, Conrad. Yeah. And that made me then want to go back and watch all the other ones. Um, so I was, you know, recording them, you know, when ITV was always doing seasons, weren't they, showing them on a, on a Sunday afternoon. So I was recording them all into VHS tapes and then getting the In Fleming books and reading those. And, uh, yeah, that, that was really what kick-started me into it. So GoldenEye remains, yeah, one of my favourites, definitely. I had a great N64 game. I used to love that. I used to play it religiously. Yeah. I've still got that for the Wii, actually. I've got the, the N64 controllers. and uh, oh. so it's, it's, Yeah, it's still a great game. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously Bond, like you say, is, is kind of like a comfort blanket for, you know, anybody growing up in, in Britain, you know, because it's always been there. It's always been on TV. And that's what that's my earliest memories of it. Um, you know, you know it, it sums up bank holidays and Christmas because there was always a big premiere. And, you know, Live and Let Die, little fact for you, still has the record for being the highest rated movie premiere on British television. It got... 24 and a, 23 and a half million viewers in 1981. That's insane. Which, you know, films don't get these days, do they? Because everybody has, like, streaming, everybody has, like, DVDs or Blu-rays or, you know, other means of watching movies. But, yeah, so, I mean, the first film that I actually saw at the cinema was, I didn't see a Bond film in the cinema until The Living Daylights in 87, when I think it was about 14. Um and I missed License to Kill because um, I don't know why. I don't think it played for long because that's the one that was a 15 and was rated a bit higher and didn't get quite as good reviews. Um, but then they started releasing the films on VHS in widescreen, and I remember collecting those. I think they released like two a month. And then that's where I really kind of like fell into like being a Bond fan. So by the time GoldenEye came around, I was like literally, you know, there and absolutely like loved that film as it came out. And I've like seen everyone at the cinema since. Yeah, I, I, it's, um, sorry, I'm clearly quite a lot older than everyone else in the conversation. Um, you, you couldn't get them. I mean, yeah, I, when I was, Growing up in the seventies, you you could not see that. I remember in oh, it was probably about nineteen seventy six. Uh, ITV. This must be the first one I saw. ITV making a big fuss about showing Goldfinger. So it was like a massive splurge in the TV times. Uh, we, you know, we're going to be showing Goldfinger, and uh, I remember my parents watching it. We stayed up and watched it, and it was absolutely mind-blowing i you know i loved it um and then 77 uh the year after when i was 12 uh that's when spy who loved me came out saw that at the cinema a couple of times that was the same year star wars came out so there is this whole just a kind of massive sensory overload uh that, that happened to me then um but yeah you know once it's gone once it'd been on telly you know, we didn't have videos. There was no way of recording it. You just had to remember it and then, you know, hope it would be on again. Uh, same with The Spy Who Loved Me. Saw it at the cinema. Once I'd seen it at the cinema, that's the end of that. You know, when are you going to see it again? Nobody knows. Uh, I, my recollection is that the year after that, which was 1978, there was a re-release, a double bill re-release of Live and Let Die and the Man with the Golden Gun, 
which I, which I went to see at a, a very small cinema in the Merion Shopping Centre in Leeds. Um, and that, uh, you know, and then the year after that was Moonraker and uh, Moonraker just was, it just hit every single one of my my buttons. And that, that was me sort of irrevocably into it. Um, but you know, my relationship with, and I've seen, seen everyone at the cinema since then, but my relationships changed a lot with them. Cause I remember going to see for your eyes only 81, right. Which is the summer of fucking Raiders of the Lost Ark. I think escape from New York, Excalibur, you know, I'm seeing all these absolutely insane films. And then you go and see it's a, it's a slightly kind of doddery Roger Moore in a, <laughs> slightly weird film made of you know it's like a little composite film made of kind of different bits that don't quite fit together there's a lot of it that even as a 16 year old i was thinking well is this all right this doesn't seem all right and then two years later you get you know octopussy and by that time i'm pompous enough to go well this is horrible you know (laughs) it's just this is racist and sexist and i hate it and i love never say never again which is at least a stupid pantomime um but yeah you know it 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 all shifts it all shifts around you know and i kind of now look at um i mean there are aspects of octopussy that that make it very difficult to watch but i love it you know it's like the it's the, the there's something very comforting about it uh and i think this is just you know a lot of it's the passage of time um and then you know the 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 roger moore ones just became a little bit laughable you know so in the 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 mid 80s you know it was nice that we were getting james bond films but they looked really uh you know sort of like your dad's kind of film you know where it's like we'll we'll just watch i don't know big not big trouble in little china but you know it's like the mid 80s there was a lot of stuff happening that wasn't james bond and that that the timothy dalton reinvention was really important uh and then there was a bit of a hiatus and then i think the pierce brosnan reinvention was really important um and then i think the the uh the craig one the daniel craig stuff that reinvention has been really important as well because it's like from that point on they have sort sort of grasped um contemporary the the, zeitgeist is a horrible word can't think of another one but you know they they, they sort of get the zeitgeist in a way that the the series hasn't always before um so yeah you know it it it, it, it's been really intriguing and you know i'm I'm a bond fan i mean i must be because i've you know it's like there was a point where i I live in quite a small flat and there was a point where it had four copies of moonraker in it right so you know it's like (laughs) clearly i i I do like the series uh but i'm not you know i'm not insane you know it's like i I read the fleming books but i couldn't i just the kingsley amos one is fine i couldn't get on with the john gardner ones you know when 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 i'm not watching a james bond film i don't think about it terribly much you know i don't i don't hanker after owning an aston martin and i don't spray myself with 007 aftershave uh and things you know it, it it's a thing i really like it's up it's it's up there you know with um the the, the really important aspects of uh yeah my, you know sort of my childhood into adolescence and then into adulthood um but it always changes you know my, my perspective on it always changes but it's it's just uh it's it's one of complete fondness now um yeah sorry that was a very long answer to a question which i have now forgotten 
uh, I, I think <laughs> I'm basically like a mid-tier James Bond fan, probably. Got all the films, seen them loads, love them. To, um, to move on to No Time to Die, uh, Jason, you mentioned um, Live and Let Die, um, which has David Hedison as Felix Leiter, who then returned for License to Kill um, and uh, kind of has a, a fairly grisly accident in that one. We mentioned about continuity earlier. Obviously, this is the first time in the Craig era that we've had the same actor, other than those two examples, uh, which were obviously many films apart, of the same actor playing Felix Leiter, or even the same actor playing Blofeld. So do we think that gives it a bit more emotional resonance, particularly what happens to Felix Leiter in this one compared to License to Kill? Yeah, I, I think what the Bond producers like, you know, um... Michael T. Wilson and Barbara Broccoli have realised is that um, you can't just make random like one-off films that don't really like reference each other anymore. And I think what they were wise to do when they finally got the rights back to Casino Royale and they saw that opportunity to like you know reboot the franchise is uh, let's make this all the same story. And they took that very brave decision when they put Quantum of Solace into you know production that this happens five minutes after the end of the the last film it's something that a bond film has has never even done before you know diamonds are forever you could say it kind of like slightly tenuously carries on from (laughs) on her majesty's secret service because connery coming back is hunting bond down in that pre-title sequence but it's not really linked to on her majesty's secret service it's just a showcase there for Connery, really, isn't it? It's one of the big missed opportunities in the, in, in the Bond movies for me. Though. Oh, certainly. And I think that's what they've done right with the Craig era. Like you say, they've managed to keep hold of actors and bring them back. And it's been great because, I mean, I, I actually love Jeffrey Wright. I think he's a fantastic actor. Uh, and he was so well cast as, as Felix in Casino Royale. And it's, it, it is a bit of a shame that he's not been able to appear in every single one. Um, he does get a mention in Spectre um, when Bond says, I've been in contact with a friend of mine called felix and he's gonna rescue uh is it monica bellucci at the beginning uh who is in that film far too short because she's an absolutely amazing actress but uh, going off on a tangent but yeah i think they've been a lot more wise that in this kind of cinema going age that people digest films a little bit differently than what they used to so they've had to be more continuity savvy and um you know yeah, you do get the odd continuity reference in the original, like, classic 20-film series of Bond, you know, where it, there's the odd mention of Tracy dying or, you know, you see Roger Moore putting flowers at Tracy's graveside at the beginning of For Your Eyes Only, but they didn't really bother about continuity, to be quite honest, because, and I think that's probably because they filmed the bloody books out in the wrong order, you know. Um, mm. But, yeah, they've been very, very good to maintain that for this series of five films, and it'll be interesting to see... You know, given what happens, whether they continue that for the new Bond twenty six, whenever that comes out, or whether they decide to like do another reboot again. And I definitely, even though I'm not a sort of hardcore fan, just having done the recent Craig rewatch, I really appreciated the continuity that was in No Time to Die. Like um, right from the off, when because um, I rewatched, I've watched rewatched Spectre only the week before. And uh, I'm saying to my partner, like, we've got to watch what happens because she's in the next one. So just follow everything. And, um, you know, and she said, I appreciate that she'd said that uh, 
you know, when she was a, when she was a little girl, like a, a man had come to the house and uh, her father kept a gun next to the bleach under the sink. And I was like, so when that happened in the first few minutes, I was like, oh, I get it, I get it. This is great. So there was enough. I find that I found that really rewarding. In fact, there were a lot, there were a lot of strands, through, like through lines from Spectre that actually retrospectively made me appreciate Spectre more. So I really liked that they put that care in there. And even this, like you know, Mr. White appearing at the end of Casino Royale, there's a line that goes right through all the films. So I, I appreciate that continuity, even as a casual viewer. So do you think that that sort of continuity is inevitable now? Because I, I I wouldn't, it would not trouble me. Um, if this is a, a sort of unique uh, five-installment arc, and then we go for a very kind of very hard reboot and just go back to individual films, do you think? Do you, do you think the, the the continuity has to be there now, Conrad? Um, no, no, not necessarily. I think there's nice continuity within these five, but I, I mean, I've got no idea what they'll do next. I would imagine they'll want their own new stamp on it, but. Um, I just I just thought it was neat the way that they sort of took the care to sort of put the threads through it that even if you're not a hardcore fan you could still kind of get or remember if you'd watched it so yeah I mean as to what they'll do next that's anyone's guess and I I don't really kind of know what the rules are in terms of you know what what uh, what people expect in terms of rebooting and all that kind of stuff um, but yeah just just with enough the five this five film arc I I just really liked the way it all, it all strung together and made sense. I think probably going to talk about this at, at the end, but it's a good point to bring it in now. For me, I'd very happily watch a film that continues on from this with the new 007, Paloma as her Felix Leiter figure, MQ, Moneypenny, and, and you know, sort of continue a modern day story with the, with the new 007 like that and do a reboot with the James Bond character maybe as a, a period and adapt the books like you were saying in order jason set them in the 50s and the 60s during the cold war um because as much as the books have been mined there's still like an awful lot of stuff that hasn't been used you know even even some of the stuff in this movie comes from the books um that you know and, and it's some of the you know the biggest stuff that's, that's quite shocking isn't it yeah i mean there's a huge amount in this uh, movie that actually comes from the novel, you know, You Only Live Twice, which was pretty much mm-hmm. discarded for, uh, you know, the film adaptation, you know, very much in the same way that Moonraker was kind of like thrown out um, when they adapted Moonraker, you know, as, as a movie. So, you know, it's interesting. We talked about that um, scene in For Your Eyes Only where, the you know, they're being dragged under the, the water and stuff, and that's actually a scene from, I think, um, live and let die. Is yeah, the scene where all Felix all gets his, you know, the shark bites his leg. That's not that's in License to Kill. That's in from Live and Let Die. So the, the Bond producers still have this really rich kind of like source material, and because they've done some quite loose adaptations of the books, there's still an awful lot of stuff in the the original twelve novels and the short stories that they could easily mine off into this one. I mean, I will probably get into proper spoilers later, but, you know, if they kind of, like, go the way of the books, they could easily do the beginning of The Man with the Golden Gun as the pre-title sequence for Bond 26 to introduce the new actor. I think that would be a cracking way of doing, of reintroducing him, um, you know, and keep the existing supporting cast because they, they are fantastic, and it would be a shame to lose 
you know, Ralph Fiennes and, and Belle Moorshaw and um, oh, the, her name escapes me, who plays Money Penny. Naomi Harris, is it? Naomi Harris. Yes, there you go. Yeah, sorry, a bit of a memory relapse there. It would be a real shame to like lose them as a supporting cast and, and Rory Kinnear as well as um, Tanner because you know they are really, really good and you know they've got a proper good ensemble at the moment. So I'd happily see them continue. Um, I'd, I'd rather a, a loose reboot, like you say, a, a, let's reboot the character of James Bond slightly with the new actor, but. I think the the biggest mistake that the Bond producers could do is reboot it completely and give us another origin film a la Casino Royale because that's going down the route of the mistakes that Sony made with the Spider-Man films. You know, The Amazing Spider-Man is wonderfully cast. Andrew Garfield, I still think, is the best Spider-Man. But he's, he's got a noose around his neck straight from the off because they're telling a story that doesn't need to be retold. So he doesn't get into the swing of it until like 75 minutes into that film. And it's a real shame that those films didn't take off because they, they went down the wrong avenue. And I think Bond, Eon really need to be quite careful at how they approach, you know, the next Bond film and the next actor who's in the role. I'm I'm really glad it's not my job. I mean, there is. I, I, it sort of half occurred to me there's a cowardly way they could approach this because there, there's a um, there's like a hiatus, isn't there, between Bond bundling Madeline onto the train and then the rest of the action. It's like it, it, is it does it look five, years, like five it? years later? So suddenly it's like a big finish would be all over that. It's like whoa, five year gap. Bloody hell! Right, let's, <laughs> let's get into that. So you know, it, and and it did very specifically say at the end of the film that James Bond would return, um, which yeah, that, that's yeah. that's they didn't say 007's going to return. It was they they definitely said James Bond. So you know, it, it did occur to me that's a way out. I don't think for a minute they will do that. I don't know what they will do. Um, and like I say, I'm glad it's not my job. I think. It, so we should probably get into the meat of the the story, and um, we we haven't come out and said it, but obviously James Bond appears to die at the end of the movie. Does it? Is that a bloody missile for crying? Is that what went out for? Oh, we. Do you know what? I um, as I was watching it, and and uh, obviously the missiles are, uh, are heading towards the island, and and I'm sort of mentally sort of ticking off characters who could still save Bond. And you think, well, Naomi is with Madeline and Matilde. Q's on the plane. I'm in Money Pen London. Felix Light is dead as well. And then I thought Paloma, Paloma is is the one who is the, you know she's the she's still on the board. She could rescue him. So yeah, one of the questions I want to ask you guys is why do you think they chose not to show Paloma rescuing Bond? And do you think I'm still in the denial stage of grief? <laughs> <laughs> they they clinked whiskey glasses together, Mark. He's gone now. They didn't know it's the it's the CIA mission. Uh, they, um, they weren't speaking, see, were they? That was as uh, I said at funny. the beginning. You know, I loved this film, but with one caveat, and that's the caveat. Because as it was kind of like set up from the beginning, because there's a whole thing with the the Russian um, is the Russian scientist or is he German? The guy who's created the nanobots, anyway. You know, mm-hmm. he swaps the DNA profiling so that it's the 
the group of Spectre agents get killed instead of Bond because that's what Blofeld was setting up when he's in Cuba. Um, and then it's kind of like, you know, that thing of like when Madeline puts the, the, the fragrance on because Safin's given her and you know it's kind of like, and you think, oh, well, that's going to be for Bond. And it turns out that it's not. It's for Blofeld. And then you're kind of like thinking, well, they're setting this whole thing off. So the, these nanobots are in your system forever. And the obvious thing that I was going through in my mind was like, he's got an EMP watch. That's his out. And they never took it at the end, as in like, he kind of like opens the salvo doors for the missiles to come in after he's finished his mission. And, you know, Safin's scra- scratched his face with the the nanobots in the vial and said, ha ha, you know, you're never going to see, uh, you know, um, Madeline and Matilda again. Um, and then he kind of like just kind of like goes, oh, right, yeah, okay, uh, you know, and then just like stands there and waits for the missiles to come. And there's a really, I think, poorly scripted line from Q where I think Q says, we've established that, you know, as in, you know, you can't get rid of these nanobots. And it's like, well, one, you've not even tried. Two, you've not even properly analysed them and looked into it. And it's like, I thought that's the whole point of him having an EMP watch was there was going to be that scene where he's got the nanobots and they're his nanobots that are going to kill him. And he uses the EMP and the watch to basically, you know, destroy the nanobots because they're effectively just little electronic micronism robots, aren't they, in your bloodstream? And I thought that's the whole point of that EMP being there. So they didn't take that avenue. And then they thought, right, okay, they're going to do the whole ending of You Only Live Twice, the book where Bond's on the island, it blows up, and Bond's missing, presumed dead. And then obviously you've got that whole thing where he washes up on a shore and he's lost his memory. And I thought, that's a great shoe-in for the next Bond film, like I said, because if you know your Bond stuff, the man with the golden gun starts with a Bond who doesn't know his Bond has been programmed by Russian agents to go and kill M and turns up at, like, MI6. And I thought that's a brilliant way of introducing the next Bond if they do that as a pre-title sequence. So my head's going round and my brain's, like, going clockwork and stuff as I, these closing moments happen in the film. And I'm thinking, right, they're not going to show Bond died. They're going to keep it ambiguous. They're going to keep it ambiguous. They'll cut. They'll do exactly what Christopher Nolan did at The Dark Knight Rises where you see Batman fly off in the thing with the bomb. You know, some days you just can't get rid of a bomb scene. <laughs> they make from Batman 66. Very favourite all-time film. Not the Casino Royale, but, you know, that's not a story. Yeah, and then, you know, they'll then cut, and then you see the explosion, and then it's left ambiguous as to whether, like, you know, Batman's been killed or not. And then you find out, obviously, that he hasn't because he's retired and he's now, like, you know, living the life with Selena Kyle in Italy at the, you know, the cafe. But there was never that ambiguous shot. There was never that cutaway to then just show the island exploding and then just kind of like, well, you know, he's missing, presumed dead. You know, it's been a while, so he's going to have to, like, it's dead. Bond just seems to kind of, like, give up. And that's the one thing I didn't like about this film because, one, you kill him off absolutely outright dead and centre. You see the missile hit literally right in front of him and the explosion, and it goes white. And it's like, well, he can't bloody survive from that, can he? No matter what kind of nanobots he's got in his system. 
And that's the thing that I didn't like because, you know, as I said, Bond is kind of like a comfort blanket. We all know James Bond will return. And I think the mistake that they've made in this film is going for something like a Logan-style ending, which is kind of like what I feel it was inspired by. You know, that end scene where Wolverine is, is impaled, he knows he's dying, you know, his daughter like kind of holds him by the hand and says, Daddy, and, you know, that breaks you. That's a, that, that emotional scene is earned. And for me, I really didn't feel this scene was earned at all because... It just didn't play right for me. You know, I've seen it again on Friday. I'm going to take my 11-year-old to see it because he's he suddenly started watching the Bond films on Blu-ray um, and he seems to be, like, developing it into quite a big fan. He's running around the house sometimes with, like, a, a Nerf gun pretending he's James Bond when he's back from school. So um, I don't know. It might play differently when I see it a second time, but at the moment, that's the really bit of the movie that I just didn't quite... It didn't land for me at all. I don't feel that it was earned for the audience. Yeah, how, how has it gone down with Bond fans? Like generally, what's the? Because I mean, this is this is like totally unprecedented, isn't it? This is they've never killed him before, like outright in the films, right? So this this must be how, like I, I was complete as an audience member. Like I was completely like when I, mean, I saw it in the first day, so I didn't even know there was a big spoiler. But like I was just shocked and like completely. It totally pulled the rug out under my feet. I was com- I was in total disbelief, and I think the audience were as well. Everyone sort of staggered out quietly, kind of a bit stunned, like it was kind of shocking. I was kind of hoping you guys were going <laughs> to explain it to me. Like, so I, mean, I suppose <laughs> what a, a big broad question: Why do you think they did that? Like, what 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 was that about? What, where do you think that came from? Was there any? Why did that happen? Over to Bond fans to explain it to me, please. <laughs> Mark? <laughs> Mark? Or are you still just shocked? Like, how, like, you must have been, Mark, you must have been completely shocked. Right? Oh, yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, I was, uh, I went to the midnight screen. This was, this was 3 30 a.m. for me, um, that I was staggering out. Uh, <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I had tears in my eyes. I, I thought it was, I thought it, it worked, I think it was very effective and worked really well. I think probably as Bond fans, we've been a little bit prepped through the film because of the musical cues from and Her Majesty's Secret Service that we were heading for tragedy maybe where the, uh, we have all the time in the world yeah. a couple of times and then when Bond's talking to him we get a little bit of the OHMS theme tune yeah, I love thing. That. So, love that. yeah and it did seem like well it's something terrible is going to happen but I, I did think the terrible thing was going to be that he would be permanently separated from uh, you know his newly found family uh, that you know he'd just have to go back to being on his own but yeah, that that it, it totally uh, totally blew me away. No pun intended. And but I think it was it was the perfect because we we we've had like you say we've had this bond from being initiated as a double O through his various missions and and the team coming together around him. I, I thought it was a I thought it was a good send off for him. Um, it, you know he'd he'd save the world at the end he got his his loved ones to safety and he just he, yeah he just kind of couldn't get away it, for me it was sort of earned and it did make sense but yeah it was shocking i i fully expected him to escape because that is 50 odd years of the bond movies isn't it is sort of impossible escapes and you know everything we've seen even in this film up to that point where you know you sort of jumping out the way of grenades and things 
but I think that made it more hard hitting and uh, was yeah a real emotional punch. What did you think, John? Uh, yeah, I, I'm I'm with you on this, Mark. Yeah, I, it, it's there, there was. Um... It wasn't quite a review. It was an article by the comedian David Mitchell, uh, basically decrying, you know, he's kind of the the main dissenting voice that I've heard lately. And, you know, his argument is that James Bond films are films about a man called James Bond who gets into exploits but doesn't die. Um, and he felt betrayed because at the end of this film, James Bond dies. Now, I, I think that's like a... That, that, that's faulty preconceptions. I think you can do whatever you want to do, um, and they they have killed the character. And I I think it's definitive. And I I wouldn't. I, I loved your I, I, that EMP watch thing, Jason. Had never even occurred to me. Um, but I'm I'm sort of glad they didn't use it. And if 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 there is some kind of magical jiggery pokery at the start of the next James Bond film that's along the lines of the you know the old kind of black and white serials where you'd see the hero sort of plummet off a cliff oh yeah oh fucking hell what's going to happen next and then you'd like you watch the next episode and they they don't plummet off the cliff you know well that's just that's yeah they've inserted the shot of them diving out of the car and into the hillside before the car goes over exactly and the the Dark Knight thing that that again just a beautiful parallel but that's the payoff at the end of the film right so if they'd done something like that um, at, at, at the end of No Time to Die, then maybe I, I think there is um, the, the the reason I think it's going to be a hard reboot last time is that you know the the blowing up of the island isn't the end of the film. The clinking of the whiskey glasses isn't the end of the film. The end of the film, as I remember, is um, uh, Madeline talking to her daughter, who I, we have to infer is James Bond's daughter. And telling her, look, I'm going to tell you a story about a man called James Bond, and it, and it's it's like a way of of I don't know, sort of stepping back from the whole thing as a you know kind of an actual objective reality to more of a, a sort of um, like a, a fantastical construction, and it, it you know that's a that's a beautiful endpoint, and I, you know I find, I'm. Uh, broken man emotionally and i don't get that worked up about you know i love films but i don't i don't have like a, a hugely nuanced emotional response to them uh, but yeah even i had a bit of a wobble at the end of that and you go wow that's that's a big thing and i, I think any sort of ah, just kind of casual undoing of it i i wouldn't enjoy it but i think people would be furious um i i, I don't know it's talking about the, the the things from the book. Saying as I was going to say earlier, the in in the books he apparently dies at the end of From Russia with Love, and I think that was Ian Fleming's original intention was that would be the end of the character. So there is kind of a precedent for it in that sense. But then popular demand brought him back, didn't he? He died at the, um, after the um, Rosa Klebs poisoned um, like shoe knife thing, didn't he? In the uh, in the book. Um, he gets he gets poisoned and then and then apparently dies. So I think that's a precedent. Okay. And also, we you mentioned you only live twice, Jason, yeah. which is the one where um, his girlfriend is pregnant. In that one, at the end of it, he's like you say, he's lost his memory. He's living as a Japanese fisherman. Uh, then he sees a, is it a newspaper headline that mentions Russia or something, and he thinks, oh, that sounds familiar. So he he goes off to Russia to uh, see if they can tell him who he is. And that's when he gets brainwashed. But I think as he leaves, uh, we learn that Kissy is, is actually pregnant, but she hasn't told him yet. So 
that's the other yeah. little uh, sort of. Uh, is it cut cut up a bit of newspaper in the loo, or have I misremembered that? It could be it's something like that. Is it a mention of? of yeah, you know, I, can't, oh, I don't know. Um, but yeah, it's obviously he's, he's kind of remembering the Cold War, but not not whose side he's on. <laughs> so we also so we get the the new 007, um, and I think this is one of the things that was pretty. I mean, I didn't see it anyway. It's amazing, I think, given the long delay of this movie, the amount of stuff that hasn't leaked from yeah. it. Oh, they've yeah. been absolutely brilliant, haven't they? Not leaking anything at all. Yeah, and um, yeah, given the shocks, and it would have been a massive shame if this if this stuff had come out months ago, and then. Uh, yeah, we, when, by the time we came to, to see the film, that all those kind of big revelations were, were already known. Something I noticed on the second viewing of the film uh, with the new 007, Nomi, I think her outfits reflect some of Bond's through the ages. I did notice so, that, yeah. At one point, I, there was, I was like, <laughs> there was a bit of a, which I think when she walked into the office and she was wearing what looked like a bit of an, I was like, that looks a little bit like a safari suit. Sorry, Mark, that was my, that was the only thing I noticed. Yeah, well, that, that's what that's what prompted me to think about it. And then I thought, oh, I'm going to keep an eye on this now. And then when she's wearing the sort of like the black kind of combat gear, it's a bit like, Brosnan at the start of Goldeneye when he does the um, the bungee jump, and then by the end, um, she's she, she sort of caught up and she picks Bond up in the like the brand new Aston Martin and takes him to the plane. She's wearing that sort of um, Prince of Wales check on her suit, uh, which is which is kind of what Bond's wearing in the uh, in, in his suit as well. So I felt like he was uh, she was she was reflecting Bond through the decades. So that that was a nice touch. It's a shame that obviously she's a great actress, and you know, I think a lot was made of like the whole thing of like you know, we get a new 007 uh, in this movie, and it's actually. Am I right in saying that she says she's been a 00 for two years? Mm-hmm. So if James Bond's been out for five years, that implies that she's inherited the number off another agent. So I'm, I was wondering, like, what the hell happened to that agent? Did they die or get killed on a mission or something? <laughs> What's the line from Casino Royale, isn't it, that that he says double O's don't have a very long life expectancy? It could have been half a dozen. It is a bit of a shame that she's kind of like overshadowed by Paloma, uh, Anadol Fria's character, who just absolutely just makes a huge impact. And, you know, I think every review that I've read and like every kind of like comment I've seen is like she's in the film far too short you know she sh- should have been in it a lot lot more and it's because her and craig have a great chemistry i don't know if you've seen knives out but they uh they're in that film as well um you know and they're great in that film so i think it was that inspired casting uh, from the producers there did anybody get a sense that making a female 007 the producers were a bit had their eye on a potential backlash from, you know, all these kind of angry YouTubers that you get and angry like people who go on about woke agendas, and that they kind of made uh, Naomi a little bit not as good as James Bond because she she loses the the scientist and Bond like gets the upper hand there, and she almost like brings the the, the rogue CIA agent and his goons to the place where Bond and Matilda and, and Madeline are hiding out. And it's almost as if like, you're kind of like the sublimely saying, yeah, we know we've got a female double O seven, but 
she's not as good as James Bond. Don't worry, James Bond's still better than her. <laughs> I think he's he's just had longer service than her, hasn't he? <laughs> um, it, it, is it? I mean, they make it explicit, don't they? Uh, when she says, you know, she's 007, and then says, you know, that must annoy you, or, you know, words, yeah. words to that effect. And then there's that great scene, and it's like a little bit of a running gag, isn't it, for a while, where, like, um, once... <laughs> yeah. um, Bond and M have had that great conversation on the the the, the River Thames, where the, that um, Honor Majesty's Secret Service like music is underplaying like slightly, which I really enjoyed. And he's back into the MI6, and he says, "I've given him uh, another double O number." And she's like, "Well, what number have you given him?" And they don't mention it, and it's almost like she's a little bit like, you know curious and like well has he got a better number than me (laughs) in reservoir dogs where they're arguing about what color they get to be (laughs) i think that's a good point jason i think i think you've hit the nail on the head there's i was really looking forward to this this element when i realized i think i saw a little bit in the trailer i thought oh this is this is great and they, they do make quite a bit of it in the trailer they um you know, there's that line of like, oh, that she's a disarming young woman, and all this kind of stuff. So I thought this could be really, really interesting. And it didn't. Um, it was, it was decent. It was a, and, and I think they did pull their punches a little bit with it. The whole, th- I just wondered why that character didn't make so much of an impression as Paloma. And I yeah. think part, of it, I, I felt like, I felt the word I, I sort of felt like I was using is I think they, it was just quite a polite, respectful of everybody you know i think i think everyone was like you know, it's, it's quite a difficult thing to put in a bond film yeah i mean a bond being what it is um i think to you know to have a woman of color as a double o as you said it's going to upset lots of people i don't necessarily know they couch that but i just think it's such a new idea i i just felt they were just very very polite about it so they didn't go too far with the rivalry the rivalry there was a little bit of jostling but it was fairly polite it, and um you know, she gave her the number bank to actually call him 007 after a while. That's okay. And it felt like a, a polite performance, but it didn't feel kind of full-bodied. It didn't feel like a huge bomb or a shock. That, so, I don't know, that that, that just rang yeah. true. And I think there was they've, they've probably taken a great deal of care on how they did it. Um, but I think that m- might be part of the reason why... I, I mean, I don't see that she hasn't made as much impression as Paloma, which is has clearly, I mean, stole the show, I think, is... Yeah, but like you say, it's almost as if they've—I don't know if it's a deliberate like choice, but they've slightly underwritten her character a little bit. You know, she doesn't have as much impact as, like, say, Michelle Yeoh's character in Tomorrow Never Dies, Wei Lin, who is absolutely you know Bond's equal throughout that movie and gets the upper hand above Bond several times in that film you know and obviously back then we didn't you know social media wasn't around for angry uh, internet people to hit their keyboards and get like angry at that kind of thing you know so it's obviously they've been a little bit too cautious with the the naomi as the the female 007 this time i wonder if there's an element if they are going to continue with this bondinuity uh with (laughs) naomi as as the lead they can fill in. They can fill in her character more as it goes on. They can delve into her background, you know what what her history was before she was a double O, and they could flesh it out a bit more. In, in a little bit in the way they did with Mallory, uh, the, the way he was introduced in Skyfall, and then he's got much more of a character, especially in this movie, 
um, in the later ones when he's not alongside the other M. Perhaps. Yeah, potentially. Um, but I think Barbara Broccoli has just ruled out um, no 007 spin-offs because there's that huge speculation now that MGM, who were like own part of the Bond franchise along with Eon, they've been bought out by Amazon, haven't they? So everyone's kind of like talking about whether or not there's going to be spin-off like movies and, and kind of like a James Bond Disney Plus style TV series for Amazon Prime and and all that kind of thing. And there was speculation that had this film been delayed even longer, that perhaps like Amazon were going to insist that it got, you know, debuted on Amazon Prime, you know, to kind of like, you know, release the film, you know, because it wasn't going to get released at the cinemas. So um, it, it is a bit of a shame that she's not real day because they have talked about spin-off films previously. I think the one that got the closest still, was... Still waiting for me, Halle Berry Jinx. Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. Jinx, was the, that was the big one that they announced and then they never did anything with it. Apparently it's quite a long way along as well before it got pulled out. Now, we've, we talked about Mallory ever so briefly there. Um, is this... Is Mallory's uh, use of it the first use of the F-bomb in a Bond film? Mm. Yes, I think. No. No, uh, Judy Dench says it in Skyfall, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. of course she does. Of course she does. Nice one, Jake. I've really fucked up in when they get to the church. Yeah. Right, yeah. Imagine you expect it from someone foul-mouthed like Judy Dench. <laughs> <laughs> she genuinely is a really foul-mouthed. <laughs> I can't believe that. I was very surprised to hear about some of her. Um, like she, she apparently she she likes needlepoint. She used to do kind of like embroideries and stuff in between takes, and she would give them to people she really liked. And uh, and she gave one to Daniel Craig with this. Like she just embroidered the c word really nicely and gave it. To him. <laughs> she got in there with the f bomb. Good old girlfriend Judy. So it's just for M's to use. That's the uh, that's the tradition. So, Connor, you were saying you're particularly taken with Paloma and Cyclops. The, yeah, he feels like a proper old, old school henchman, doesn't he? Well, yeah, these. Two, I mean, the, both those. I mean, both those. Those are my highlights of the film. Really, were like Paloma. I don't know quite. I think you know we need to talk about that more, really, because I mean, she's been in, uh, qu- like quite why she made quite an impression. I think. I think she. You mentioned Jason. They'd done Knives Out. Apparently, this was filmed like directly afterwards. So they went straightly from. If I've got this right, they went from. Daniel Craig and Anna Diarmas went straight from Knives Out straight into filming this, which would explain the kind of insane chemistry they had. I mean, mm. I mean, she's she was just an absolute knockout, and um, I'm not a straight man, so I can only imagine, you know, the sort of uh, brains being how your brains are being spun by her because she's like drop dead gorgeous, and there's just something massively pleasing about a woman in an evening dress. Just you know, cut down very far, cut up very far, sort of roundhousing people with like machine guns in each hand. I mean, that's just that's just Christmas. It's fabulous. Oh yes, <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. I, I don't need to explain this to you. Like, Paloma was an absolute knockout, and uh, yeah, she was amazing. And, but yeah, I mean, I was my other highlight. Um, and and uh, genuinely, that bit was fantastic. When she started kicking pe- the shit out of people, I was just like mm-hmm. grinning and wriggling my seat. I was, was just so happy. Um, the other bit that made me like equally happy, as you mentioned, Mark, is like I, I love henchmen in, in generally in anything. Um, but I always like, I love them in James Bond films. It's one of the, the sort of highlights of a film 
Bond film. He's a, a freaky henchman. Um, and I mentioned Moonraker is the first one we went to see. So I had hugely fond memories of Jaws, being kind of scared by him, but also I knew he was kind of funny as well. And just like from odd job right through to Dave Bautista as Mr. Hinks, like I, I, lo- I bloody love the henchman. It's like a sort of circus-like appeal. Um, and so in the very long uh, pre-credits sequence, which is all fantastic, when that motorbike pulled up and a guy in a weird 80s jacket with a kind of funky Euro haircut took his glasses off and has a funky eye, I was like, in heaven. I was like, this could <laughs> not be... I was just, again, just so happy. Um, and he was brilliant. And uh, and he was like... I like the fact he was a presence all the way through the film. I was always looking out for him. I think I think the fact that he had a bionic eye, and they called it bionic, and there were adults <laughs> saying the word bionic. We well, you know bionics is a, a valid, real thing. That's an accurate description of what it is. But of course, if you grew up with a six, you know, six million dollar man, anyone who says bionic sounds like they're twelve. Um, so I love, <laughs> I love the fact saying, no, no, James, you've got a bionic eye, and I was like, say it again, say it again. Say it again. <laughs> so I loved him from his first appearance right through to, you know how he died i bloody loved him so yeah that character's called primo played by an actor called dali ben salah who is a french algerian thai kickboxer and had great fun researching that um so yeah yeah paloma and primo he was my yeah paloma and primo i mean i i would say i'd swing both ways but there's no time to buy there you go, Mark. Ah, <laughs> oh. i had to bring a pun Mark. Mark likes his puns. it's in the contract there it is well well speaking of, is that um, Daniel Craig's first quip when he kills somebody. I, I couldn't think of any others when he kills Cyclops and uh, he tells Q that his watch blew his mind. I couldn't think of another quip that, that Craig's made. So that that was um, that was a first for his character as well and a nice nod to Bond history, wasn't it? Yeah, I didn't realise that was one of his first. That's, yeah, that was cool. I couldn't think of any others anyway. Um, but um friend of the podcast, Colin Neal, was asking why the... Uh, the EMP pulse on the watch didn't take out Bond's earpiece. But I think that's explained when Q talks about the short range of it. And also why it doesn't kill the nanobots as well, I suppose. He does hold it very close to the eye. Yeah, he's got the headlock when he's doing it, yeah. Yeah, so I think it just doesn't reach his his little earpiece, which is on the other side of Bond's head. Yeah, that'll do. I'll buy it. Who cares? I was watching that on the second watch, and uh, I thought, "Yeah, that'll um, that'll do." <laughs> See, if it was Desmond Desmond Llewellyn's Q, it would have knocked out the whole <laughs> island's electronics as well as his nanobots. Yeah. <laughs> and how about you guys? What kind of what kind of highlight? Those were definitely my highlights. There were the things I just I, I just Paloma and Primo, which are absolutely. I know it sounds daft, but those those are the sort of things I come to a Bond film for, and I I loved them. Mm. Um, what do you guys make of the villains? They, 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 there is some slight controversy, isn't there, um, about the, the the sort of uh, what is seen as a, a casual use of the trope of somebody with a scarred face being villainous. And yeah, you, you, you kind of yeah you, you put me in mind of it there. You know, when we were talking about uh, freaky henchmen, which is, I think, you know, sort of part of the um, you know that 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 is part of a James Bond film, but. There is a, a sort of representational element there that, that you know, maybe, maybe is the next thing to look at. Um, 
I'm 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 not 100 percent sure, and I'm not the right person to ask. The the, the Remy Malik, he's he's all right, isn't he? Uh, uh, yeah, he's a lot more effective in his opening scenes than he is towards the end of the movie. I yeah. thought. Yeah, he didn't sing any of his songs, which was a bit of a shame. <laughs> <laughs> Don't stop me now, that sort of thing. <laughs> yeah, that was quite a, quite a horror opening, wasn't it? It, it used the um, the sort of jump scares a little bit and that yeah. sort of masked killer um, who you think is dead and then isn't. It was uh, you know, like kind of a... Yeah, because you feel like at the beginning of the film with the mask he's wearing, you're, like, you're watching like, you know, a, a Japanese like ring or grudge movie. Yeah. <laughs> So what is I've forgotten his name already. Lucifer Satan. What's what's his kind of ongoing motivation? Safin. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Lucifer Safin. Lucifer. That's yeah, funny. I know. <laughs> it's like, I, 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 I get. You know, I get why he was um, why he had problems with Mister White and why he wanted to kill off Spectre. Oh, and we need to talk about the Spectre Party as well, if that's okay. Um, but once mm. he'd done all that, it's like, why Why is he still cross? I, I, I've forgotten. What is his motivation? It's not really elaborated on, is it? I don't know what his, his motivation is. Money by the end, doesn't he? He just wants to sell the, the virus, I think, to the highest bidder, I think, by that yeah, stage. Okay. And he's, he's a bit obsessed with Madeline. I think it's not clear really what happened after he rescued Madeline as a child, whether there was any element that he looked after her for a while or... I feel like that was something that was slightly missing that we needed some clarity on. I don't know what you guys thought. Possibly. I've only seen the film once. I mean, you know, just... I don't know how many times generally people watch bond films i mean i don't you know i guess people go back to them but i don't know if they go back to them particularly critically or 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 analytically um the the way we might do uh so you know a lot of the uh, a lot of the stuff that the films get criticized for don't don't necessarily seem fair to me there was a lot of speculation about him being a uh the new version of Doctor No, wasn't there? Um, before the film came out. And there's the, that scene at the beginning where he gets shot and he gets shot and, um, he, you know, he gets shot in the chest and you think he's dead and then he kind of like, you know, obviously isn't. And I thought, is, is that deliberate homage to Doctor No, who had his heart on the other side of his oh. chest? And that's why Safin survived. And I thought, did they then rewrite it, you know, and decide not to, like, reboot another established Bond villain? I thought he was just wearing a bulletproof vest. <laughs> well, was that as well? <laughs> <laughs> I think in terms of highlights, the, the, the bit with the Aston Martin DB5 and the pre-title sequence, I, I absolutely loved. And the um, I've been listening to soundtrack a little bit this week as well. Um, I got I got that on vinyl, and that music when when he finally uh, pops the uh, the machine guns out of the headlights um, is just yeah, it's a brilliant piece of music, and I, and I love that scene where he's kind of doing the donuts, firing the uh, machine guns, and then uh, and then letting the smoke out of it as well. It's uh, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I think, I think the direction of the film is absolutely spectacular. 
Um, mm. I, th- I think it's it's just really confident. Um, and I I think I was reading I was an interview or comments from Ben Wishaw saying it had been filmed very much like an independent film. So you know the, the uh, director is, Ke- is Kerry. Uh, forgive me, I can't pronounce her name. Nawa. Thank you. How you pronounce her? Yeah. Um, had had not you know so, sort of gone in. I, f- I find I mean there's there's so much to praise Sam Mendes for, but I, f- I find his direction just a little bit kind of. Uh, deadening whereas this this did seem quite light on his feet and from what Ben Wishaw was saying it felt chaotic while they were doing it uh, but clearly now you look at the you know the assembled product um, it was it was being very 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 well controlled and uh, you know that that's the way it feels to me it, ju- it just looked absolutely professional in a way that for example Quantum of Solace doesn't um, and yeah, the, you know, the highlights for me was, was the stunt stuff. It's like, you know, all that bridge stuff with the rope and the motorbike, even though I've seen it dozens of times in the trailer. And there was a bit where Bond was walking across the bridge and you go, Oh, aye, aye, there's the bridge. <laughs> he'll be, he'll be coming back there. You know, you, you see it in the context of the film, just go bloody hell, this is amazing. And yeah, the, the Aston Martin stuff's fantastic. It's just like, yeah. it, it just, it felt really confident, really kinetic, never lost its footing. Um, I mean, that's not a highlight, is it? What's the highlight of the whole film? Um, but yeah, you know, the, the, there was a, just, a, just a, a competence to it that was a lot more than I expected. Well, I think that's interesting you say that, John, is, is because I'm of the, the opinion that the, like the first 20 Bond films, besides like the odd one like on a majesty's secret service and golden eye none of them really have a like kind of like a directorial flair from the the people who directed the films like, it's kind of like a very much a house style yeah um, like, you, you, you're like, second, second unit director on a previous one yeah you can have the yeah. next one but i think what they've now done they've now realized that they need to get like you know um Top end directors, they need to, uh, uh, you know, they can't just get a journeyman in mm. to shoot and film. And it's like the the story of Michael Apted when he was, um, you know, approached for the world is not enough, and he, he turned them down because he said, "I don't know why you're asking me because I'm not an action film director." And they said, "Well, don't worry, we just want you to film the character stuff, and we've got Vic Armstrong who'll film all the action stuff." And I think they've kind of like realised they can't take that approach in modern movies. They have to like get approached, like get the best talent, you know. And it, it, if you've seen uh, Fukunawa's um, TV series True Detective, you know it, you can see why he was hired because um, you know that TV series, those three series were absolutely amazing, you know, and they're really tense, really like you know um, thriller esque, and and that's the approach he kind of like brings with. Um, to no time to die but as well as you know the action scenes i think since the craig era have have gone up a notch because they've i think they've realized they've had to compete to um you know other films out there and and the way action cinema has developed you know um you know i don't know who mentioned it but like you know 1981 for your eyes only you know same year that raiders of the lost art came out you look at those two films and you know, one of them is probably the, one of the best action adventure movies ever made, and the other one's quite a pedestrian shot, like spy thriller. You know, um, that just doesn't hold a candle to the other film. And 
it's like License to Kill came out in the same year, a year after Die Hard, and the same year as like the Lethal Weapon films, and they have brilliant action scenes. And you've got License to Kill, which again is like kind of like a little bit pedestrian and stuff. So they, I think they've learned the lesson that they, they really need to attract the talent, you know. And the same with the scripts, you know, they've had Oscar winners like John Logan and Paul Haggis, you know, who've like you know won Oscars for screenplays, and they've hired them to like do the polishes on the film. And with this one, they've got. You've got be um Waller Bridge, is it? Mm-hmm. Who, who's you know, who was attracted and, and hired to do a, a, a polish on the script as well, you know. So they, so they realise they need to get the best talent in to make these films still successful. So what what do what do we think a Danny Boyle one would have looked like? That's a very interesting thing because he's, I think, even more a stylistic uh, kind of director, and he's one of the, you can't really kind of like peg into a hole because he's done so many different genres. But I would have loved to have seen his his take on on a Bond film, but they just didn't quite come to an agreement, did they? Yeah, no, it, it's one of those great what ifs. It's like the the Quentin Tarantino Star Trek film. You know, it's like I can't imagine it, but, but I want to see it. <laughs> what do you reckon, Mark? What What were your thoughts when Danny Boyle was announced? Well, he obviously directed the the Olympic um, scene, didn't he? With uh, with Daniel Craig and the Queen. I think I'm right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I believe that was who uh, it was. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess that would have been yeah, how the discussions maybe started about him doing a Bond movie. Um, I mean, there wasn't a, <laughs> an awful lot of action in that. Um, <laughs> how the Queen jumping out of a helicopter into a stadium? How much action do you want, Mark? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't that excitingly shot, I suppose. But that was obviously um, some limitations as to what they could do. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just, I, I very kind of on-off. I, I mean, I love, I, I, I love, I love the fella, but I, I don't always love his films. Um, you know, so I think Twenty Eight Days Later is magnificent. I love Sunshine. The, the whole of the rest of his oeuvre, I can pretty much take or leave, to be honest. I just forget about Twenty Eight Days. I was trying to think what action he's directed. Yeah. But yeah, he did do Twenty Eight Days Later, didn't yeah. he? Yeah, he done some right old toot as well. Um, <laughs> I, I did not take to the beach. Uh, oh Lord. Slumdog Millionaire is not too bad, you know. He directed that, didn't he? And Sunshine, Sunshine's good. I love Sunshine. I I didn't get on with Slumdog Millionaire. I've not seen 127 hours. I'm not as big of a fan uh, of uh, Shallow Grave and Train Spotting as I I should be. Uh, I mean, they're clearly good films. I just don't. There's some, there's, there's some there's some kind of edge to them that I don't quite like. And it, it it would have been interesting to see what he brought to a Bond film. Because um, I think it, it, Bond films are always very highly polished by the time you get them. I, th- I think, well, generally that that's certainly you know kind of the aim. Whereas I think Danny Boyle is he's quite a spiky director, and he likes a bit of um, you know surface texture and things. It would have been interesting, but um, I don't know how successful it would have been. <laughs> no, but and I think it's it's true because like. The, uh, I, the producers of the films have been very, very hands-on, and I think it's no secret that they don't give directors like you know final cut, do they? You know, they very like to keep it in house. 
certainly um, a bit like uh, Marvel Studios and Kevin Feige do. Uh, you know, they hire some oh, good yeah. talent. Yeah, this, this is I mean, this is another lost film, isn't it? The uh, the Edgar Wright Ant Man film. Yeah, yeah. Oh, there's been quite a few. Patty Jenkins uh, left uh, yeah. for Dark World literally just before it was about to shoot, didn't yeah. it? Um, so there is some interesting, you know, elements there because you know, it, I think now were they too hands on the Danny Boyle that he then decided to, uh, you know, not do the film. Or was it a disagreement over where the story was going? Or you know, um, but it's interesting that obviously you know Marty Campbell said he'd never do another Bond film, but they managed to get him back for Casino Royale, and I think that's out of the two films that he did. Goldeneye is still brilliant, but he seemed to like even have a a better encore with uh, Casino Royale. Um, and you know, yeah, they misstepped a little bit with quantum but i don't feel it's the director that's at fault for quantum it had things like the writer's strike and you know that kind of thing it hit that trouble in you know 2007 2008 um but sam mendes yeah a great you know he's great at filming the shots and i think that was evident from american beauty is his debut but you know he wasn't quite up there with the the action scenes so it's kind of like we've got the best of both worlds with no time to die now it's funny did you see 1917 jason i haven't seen that one yet no yeah i mean that that's another one where you know i i kind of watched it and was absolutely in awe of the spectacle and just not remotely fucking involved in the film at all and i just, you know it's there's, there's something that, that did, did did he do Revolutionary Road, Sam Mendes? Yes. Yeah, which is a brilliant book, and it's you know it should be a great film, and it's not. And it, I I don't know if it if it's just if it's just too sophisticated for me, or if there just is that sort of absence of sort of complexity, maybe. You know he. he Oh, I'm being unfair on Sam Mendes here. There must be counterexamples, but it, his films always seem quite um, surfacey, and it, you know that that's that was very much the case with his his Bond films. I think you know he got that he, he got the patination of them, but you know I, I, I never felt there was like much going on underneath. Yeah, I mean, much was made, I think, of Spectre. And, um, you know, I kind of like agree to a point, even though I really do like that film, that it had the the world's least exciting car chase in it, you know, which, you know, that scene in itself, you know, with, you know, Bond in the, the DB10 and, and Mr. Hinks in the, the Maserati he's driving, um, you know, that should be a brilliant kinetic cinema. And it, it kind of falls a little bit flat. And especially when you compare it to the recent chase scenes in like the, last couple of Mission Impossible's uh, movies. Um, so I think that's its only failing. But I think they're going in the right direction. It'll be interesting to see who they get to direct the next film, you know, or whether they cast their net a further afield. And I know Christopher Nolan, I think, has turned them down a couple of occasions. Well, he's done Tenet now, so, you know, yeah. that, I think that's that out yeah. of his system. Plus, I think Inception, which I think is his best film, was kind of like his little homage to Honor Majesty's Secret Service as well, wasn't it, with the whole like snow yeah. sequence at the end? Oh, yeah, definitely, definitely. But I, I agree with you, John. I think in terms of the direction of this film, like I think confident is a good word. I think it does – there's a lot in it. And, and when I saw the running time, I was like, two hours and 43 minutes. To be honest, after a long lockdown, I was like, 
I would watch this for five hours. I'm yeah. like, just give it, I just want to get to the cinema and see some James Bond, for God's sake. But I mean, there's a lot in it. Two hours and 40, 43 minutes is really long. But um, I felt that like it, it held my interest all the way through, even though I didn't like necessarily love every thread, but like it, I think it was confidently and fully directed. And there's some fabulous sequences in there. The, you know, I think the, all the first 25 minutes is the pre-credit stuff is amazing. The stuff at the house with the ice and the lake is incredible. Oh, yeah. The stuff in Matera with the bridge, all of that stuff, just oh, absolutely top notch. The, the stuff in the forest is just... The for- I was stunning. just going to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it was just that that was stunning. It just being in that forest, I thought, this feels like sort of new territory, but it's a Bond film. It just just being in that forest, hearing the roaring of those motorbikes was just so exciting. Um, mm. You know, the scene with uh, Felix Leiter's death in the, you know, it was, it was all sinking. There were some fa- just fantastic sequences in there. So, uh, so I just... Yeah. Yeah, just directorially very, very confident, I think. I mean, you know, possibly them, them I don't know if, if every single thread or character went as far as I wanted them to go, but generally uh, he, it was a coherent film that really held your attention. My, my, I don't think my mind wandered once in the whole 2043, which is pretty good. Yeah, I did agree, no, Conrad. Um, you know, it, when you saw that running time, you think, oh, God. And I think I think certainly since uh, I call it the Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings effect, I think there's been a tendency in Hollywood that due to the success of those kind of films to make films longer when they don't necessarily need it. And there's a lot of films where you could easily like edit a good 20 minutes, half an hour out of, and they'd be a, a much better film. But like I said, I didn't feel the time in this at all it, it literally from the moment it started to the moment it ended i didn't look at my watch once i was engrossed i was enthralled you know and it, the time just went like that you know which is a sign of a great movie yeah i absolutely agree it, it didn't feel like that long it was it, it just grabbed you right from the start and uh, and, and dragged you along you mentioned felix Leiter's death there conrad reminding me I think it was it sort of echoed uh, Vesper Lynn's death as well, um, which is again it's beautiful for tying the whole um, five film arc together. You got that little bit at her grave, obviously um, early on as well. So that it felt like a bit of a turning point in the movie in that way. That was me. Um, so now I've, I've only seen it once. Um, so Mark and so John, you've only seen it once. Mark yeah. and Jason, you've seen it twice. What? Do, you know, sometimes films can change drastically the second time. Sometimes they can stay the same. Like I remember seeing Rise of Skywalker. I saw it three times because I went to see all the Star Wars films. And it was exactly the same each time I saw it. I got nothing more or less out of it. Um, what was it like for you guys seeing it a second time? Did it sort of reveal more to you or, did, or was it, did, it pretty, did you pretty much come out? I, I, I guess the ending, knowing the ending probably makes a big difference, right? Yeah, there's little bits that I spotted. So... When uh, at the hotel right at the start, when they get in the car and Madeline says, I need to tell you something. Obviously, on a second viewing, you know, it's probably that she's pregnant, um, which obviously you don't know the first time around. And I sort of assumed that it was something to do with Safin. But, uh, you know, and that that makes more, more sense of her sort of desperation in those scenes when the car's under attack and things like that. Um, and then just little little details, like I spotted that um, the uh, and we, we just keep saying the Russian scientist. I don't think anybody picked up his name. Um, that he has Bond's toothbrush that we see him brushing his teeth with under that sort of um, waterfall shower yeah. thing. 
where he's getting his DNA yeah. from. But you only see it for for sort of a moment when he's sort of taking um, he's sort of lifting the DNA off it. Um, and, and obviously, even like the scene when Safin is in Madeline's office, and just as she arrives, he's wrapping one of yeah. her hairs up in a hanky. He's like, "Oh God, yeah, that's um, that's actually gets the DNA for later on." So there's lots of little things that sort of tie up like that, I think. But yeah, in terms of um, of massively changing it, I don't I don't think that does. There's various things that like Blofeld saying, you know, this will be the death of you, and and uh, the Russian scientists when they arrive on the island saying this is a suicide mission. I suppose there's little hints as well that it is uh, you know leading towards tragedy. But there's sort of things that baddies say anyway, so. You could probably find uh, examples of that in all the Bond movies, really. <laughs> Given, like, obviously you saw it the second time, I'm seeing it the second time on Friday. Um, did, when you knew what was coming towards that that end point, and d- were you looking out for extra things to see if there was like that little get out clause that the you know the, the the producers and the directors would put in just in case they were going to continue and not have it as a five film like separate like series. Yeah, absolutely. Especially after the first one, um, as I say, I was I was in denial a little bit. I think it's um, like I can't remember the other five stages of grief. Because <laughs> I, I have seen mentioned in, in places where um, obviously you know um, Naomi and Bond are injected with the smart blood, so they can track where they are um, on the island. And obviously, you see the display screens, and I have seen it speculated somewhere that you don't quite see it. Bond's screen with the blue trident saying that he's dead. It just says offline, and some of his vital signs are still there. So I don't know whether he spotted that, like on a second viewing. I think it totally flatlines, and um, and it says offline. So I I took it as as further evidence that like he was he was definitely dead. Right. I mean, you, you saw. I mean, I think the first time I watched it, when the missiles break up, I thought they detonated them early for a second. That M had given the order, but they're the missiles that sort of break up into smaller ones, aren't they? And uh, <laughs> so that they can uh, they can cover a wider area, I think. So I had like a the first view, and I had a moment of hope there. <laughs> um, I was a bit like uh, you know Alan Partridge when he's describing the the spy oh, me. <laughs> oh God, James Bond's going to die. He's going to die. <laughs> and he, only this time he does. <laughs> See, that's what Madeline's going to do to Matilda. She's going to reenact the Bond films at bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that'd be brilliant. I think you'd make a movie just of that of that car journey of, <laughs> of a retelling the Bond film. Yes, he's with a lady. <laughs> and then in 1983, things get complicated. <laughs> Oh, actually, we have, that's one that we haven't. God, we've talked about um, a lot of the characters. We haven't talked about um, Leia Sedu as uh, as as Madeline, you know, coming back again. How, what what do you make of of that character? Yeah, good. Well, she was quite lambasted for being a bit bland for Spectre, which I never got um, an inkling of. Because again, you know, I, I really like Spectre as a movie, um, but I thought she was she played it superbly in this film, you know, and she really, uh, you know, if she did give a bland performance in you know spectre which i don't really see um she certainly ups her uh, acting chops in, in this one she really does and uh, again like you mentioned about the whole thing about you know i've got to tell you something and it's like you know on a second viewing you know you suss that it's you know i'm pregnant 
Um, I did notice that when he drops her off at the train station, she does that subtle yeah. nothing that pregnant women do. She she holds her stomach, you know, yeah. as she's yeah. there on the platform. And I thought, oh right, you know, and I spotted that first time. So, um, yeah, wow. I think she's a great actress. Yeah, yeah, yeah she yeah, absolutely yeah. is. She's she's in um, a French film called Blue Is the Warmest Color. Uh, which is a film I absolutely adored. And then it was, you know, became problematic um, subsequently, but she, she is fantastic in it. It's, um, you know, she, she, she's subtle and complicated and, you know, it's, I, I don't think she's allowed or encouraged to do that particularly in the James Bond films, but you know, you, you kind of wouldn't expect it. I guess. Yeah. I never spotted the, uh, you say a hold in a stomach, the first time uh jason so did you sort of guess when the five-year time jump came because there's normally a good reason for something like that i thought it was to give tie a uh, bond a bit of time away from mi6 give uh, you know in hindsight another 007 time to become established and and all the rest of it yeah i i was kind of expecting there to be a child like when he goes and, and tracks madeline down in norway you know and uh, obviously she, you know she's got bright blue eyes just like daniel craig is so yeah. and she does make that point of saying no oh, you know before you ask she isn't yours and i thought no you're, you're lying straight away but you're lying to protect her and to protect bond as well mm-hmm. um from you know getting too involved because you still want to like you know keep you know them separate um so then when she does make that reveal you know at the end when they're having the conversation when bonds decides to give up like an ass on the island uh, you know and she says you've she has your eyes and he says i know you know um you know i thought that was a touching moment um but again it kind of like falls flat because he kind of like thinks all oh, right i'm a dad and then just still decides to die so he can't yeah. pay child maintenance. That's what he why he did it. <laughs> well, if he's um, well, assuming he doesn't left a will, um, she would be his beneficiary anyway. Sure, she? Sure, yeah. she would inherit um, his flat and the Aston Martin. And uh, I've seen a photo of that garage where where the Aston Martin was, and there's loads of bottles of Bollinger and stuff in there. So. <laughs> Well, it seems he's got uh, garages full of different Aston Martins dotted all over London. Yeah. <laughs> well, I suppose the good thing about him being reinstated is that he would get his death in service as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, come to think, when he's, in, when he's in Cuba, he's not licensed to kill, is he? So he's, he's culpable for those deaths. The henchman he kills. Uh, the Spectre Party. Yeah. Well, he's no, because he's officially working for the CIA. Because Felix has recruited him, hasn't he? Well, have they got a license to kill though? I presume the CIA do what they want to do. Really, he's so, covered third party. <laughs> now, tell, tell me about this Spectre party because it looked it ain't no party like a Spectre party. It, 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 <laughs> it looked fabulous. Were, were were they identifiable Spectre villains? I, I was kind of half hoping there would be. You know, you know, kind of identifiable Spectre characters from previous Bond films, but it all, it all seemed to go so fast. Yeah, I was hoping that as well, that there might be a sort of a, a Doctor No lookalike, yes. um, or, you know, like a Red Grant in there. <laughs> but they were, a couple of them are from the Spectre meeting. Oh, in, nice. In the movie Spectre, I recognise a couple of faces uh-huh. from that. Oh. oh, that's good attention to detail. Dead spot, though. Mm. It was an interesting sequence that it was quite, it was quite weird. It, it almost felt like uh, 
it, it felt very there was some sort of very quite surreal shots. I mean, it was, obviously it's a very uh, you know James Bond is very fantasy and it can go kind of nudge into the absurd, if I may. Um, and uh, it, it felt almost like kind of Harry Potterish or something. That kind of like weird shot of the butler holding the eye on a cushion with two other other guys behind him, like backlit. And then it just and then he was suddenly spotlit. Then all these weird people around him all suddenly it, it kind of got very fantastical. It felt just felt very weird. Yeah. Just, just wandering through with the mm-hmm. eye on a tray and nobody said he's got your eye. I know. Nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, it was. Uh, well, I, I loved the. Um, I loved the fact that that wasn't over-explained. Uh, you know, the is it is it to target Bond by using his DNA? No, because we've used all the DNA for all the Spectre people. Now they're all going to die, apart from James Bond. I thought I thought that was really beautifully done. Um, yeah. And it took the taste away from uh, Hugh Dennis having been in it, which is the only thing I slightly bumped up against, having grown up with the the Mary Whitehouse experience. Okay. <laughs> right, yeah. if one of these four is going to end up in a Bond film, I'm pretty sure it's going to be Rob Newman. But no, no, apparently it's Hugh Dennis. <laughs> That's been a bit of a thing in the, in the Craig films. There's been quite a few sort of sitcom actors because the dad from Friday Night yeah, Dinner. Yeah, Hugh Dennis is... Um, He's in uh, Fleabag, so I, I wondered if that there was a thing there. Uh, right. I haven't seen Fleabag. Oh, ah, it's it is very good. I need to remedy that. Though. It doesn't take <laughs> long. Watch the the first series. It's like six episodes. It's three three hours. Get it done in an afternoon. That'll tell you whether you like the second one or not. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think the casting was generally like good in this. Like, I really like. I have to say, like having a child actor in a film, and also there's not many children in Bond films generally. No. If I, I mean, I'm sure there's been some. Yeah, so miss, missing the the all round sh- the the short round experience. This is nothing to do with James Bond, but to me, why would anyone have a child and not call them short round? I mean, apart I from the social services, obviously. <laughs> No time for love, <laughs> Dr. Bond. Let's <laughs> <Time to> go. <laughs> oh, God, he's so good. Um, he's great. Yeah, he's sensational. Uh-huh. But it, it, like, I don't know, it just struck me that you not, don't, I don't know. I mean, I'm sure there's been a, a couple of cameos and stuff, but generally, like, it's not, you know, it's very much an adult world and there's not, yeah. you don't tend to get kid, kids in there and he's not a man who normally has responsibilities. I've just got to say, I was so hugely grateful that, that, that a child actor who was, absolutely fantastic like yeah. she was yeah. so good i was just hugely grateful because generally i don't want to see children in films I'm no i thought you like, like, doctor who never used to have children in it oh uh, yes yeah that's true yeah it's a new series thing that isn't it very much it's a new series thing i also thought the casting of um that guy um who played logan ash the guy He's just got a face you just want to punch. You do, don't you? <laughs> he just looks like, I mean, he just looks like a Ken doll. And he was, it's, a, it's one of those parts that you don't tend to kind of, um, we don't tend to kind of, we just, they do such a good job and they're so well cast, you just don't like them and don't want to think about them. Yeah. Like, that's a really good bit of casting. Um, it, he he, just he would like, be quite at home in uh, Shield or Sword or Hydra or something, wouldn't he? He's just got that, that sort of slight. Um, just, just smarminess to him. I loved it when uh, Bond says, "Who's the Book of Mormon over there?" Because he just... <laughs> that was brilliant. <laughs> yeah, fabulous. 
Yeah, that was a, a great funny line. And when Q comes into M's office and, and pretends that he's seeing Bond for the first time. Oh, yeah. And then just shuts him down because I know he's staying with you. Yeah. <laughs> that was good. He's great, he's great Ben Wishaw, isn't he? He's, yeah. And a couple of scenes of those, them two staying together wouldn't have gone amiss as well if they'd had, had a bit of time for a bit more comedy yeah. business. It's a sitcom in the making, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Man about the house with Bond and Q. <laughs> so there's a bit of... Um, what you don't get in a lot of the Bond movies as well, um, I think maybe for your eyes only, which you've mentioned it a couple of times, is another one where the acknowledgement that Bond is getting a bit older because uh, in Fiora's only there's the the figure skater, isn't there? BB Doll. That is who, horrible. Oh, yeah, it's ho- Holly. What's her name? Isn't it? Oh. Uh, I can't. Remember, yeah, I can't remember the actor's name. Um, but, but but Bond at least has the good the decency to reject her advances, <laughs> um, and that's a little bit as well with um, with Paloma in this one that um, that he sort of thinks when she's uh, when she drags him into the wine cellar and starts undressing him. Uh, that it is, you know, like the sort of traditional Bond, uh, women can't resist him and uh, can't keep their hands off him. Um, so, yeah, there's a bit of an acknowledgement because she's immediately just like, oh, no, 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 no. Really not. To be fair, Daniel Craig is looking pretty fine. Yeah, he's, he's still got a, a good, like, 30-year age difference. Yeah, yeah. There. <laughs> so. But yeah, he's um, yeah he's, he's in an enviable shape still. Although I did like the line that uh, Nomi has when he sees, says, "Oh, you know, I'll shoot you in the knee, the one that works," which I thought was like, <laughs> yeah. especially considering Daniel Craig has busted his leg several times during these films. Yeah. Yeah, so I can see why she shot him. <laughs> Everyone tries once, as Nomi Penny says. Yeah, a lot, lot, lot of great lines like that. So where do we think the Bond franchise is going to go from here then? As I said before, I, I, I'd really love a, a movie with with the new 007 and, and the same crew um, and, and really flesh her character out, see what happens next and, and, and do a period series of Bond films alongside it. I know it's, it's probably unlikely, but yeah, you know, adapt the books and, and especially that arc of... of on a magic secret service and then, but then do that properly and see the aftermath of it. Um, you know, what happens in the books is he, he sort of starts to drink more, doesn't he? And goes off the rails a bit and then loses his memory, gets brainwashed. You know, some great sort of, uh, you know, cliffhangers you can put into those movies and, and, and do it as a series like that, but have that kind of sixties glamorous aesthetic to them as well. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an, it's an Amazon property now, isn't it? We were talking about that earlier. So, you know, goodness knows what they'll do with it to to be honest i i think my, my favorite move forward is uh, you know i think i've said it a couple of times now is just the hard reboot like between roger moore and dalton or between dalton and brosnan or you know brosnan and craig i, I think you can do that every now and then just stop it and start again mm. i'm not sure i think i just i, I like the idea of uh I, I think james bond i mean he's like he's an i he's an idea I mean, he's like Doctor Who or something. And just like, I, there is just certain, I was just going back to like what I want out of a Bond film as a, again, as, as generally been a casual viewer. Like, and I just, I just want those key ingredients. So they obviously need to kind of keep updating them, but as long as it's, you know, 
Bond doing cool shit with cars and guns. Um, exotic locations, I realised, were a huge thing. I certainly appreciate that during lockdown, watching yeah. all the old films. Every time there was an amazing vista, an amazing location, it was, it was a, literally a wow moment. Every time there was, I wanted something in a Bond film that made me go, wow. Like I watched it with my partner and, what, and every so often one of us would just go, wow. And it would often be a stunt or, a lo- or just a sweeping location or a, or a Bond woman in a fantastic dress, something to make us go, wow. So as long as it's got the wow factor, I'm fairly easily pleased. And it's got those ingredients and freaky henchmen. Yeah, I'm good. I think it's probably something in that, in that the more hardcore Bond fans would worry about the continuity or, you know, where, where a new Bond, whether it be the same character or not, in a way that, yeah, the casual viewers yeah. will just turn up and see a, see a Bond movie and, and see all the awesome stuff in it. That's it. I, I kind of want those 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 elements, but I'm not, I'm not really bothered how they do it. I love the idea of a sort of 60s period type thing, so I think that's, that, would, that would be a really good way of doing it. And also, you know, it's... Um, uh, uh, you know, the, it's it's a lot of work for them to to keep updating things. And I think it's a good thing. Some things they, I felt in the Craig era, they they I think they really successfully instantly managed to update the idea of masculinity, which was really. I remember in two thousand six thinking James Bond. When you, you, when you thought of it, you just tend to think of sort of Pierce Brosnan. And it was all about. You just thought of sort of. It just had a whiff of stale aftershave about it. It just <laughs> seemed about like. <laughs> how are they going to do this but they did it completely successfully it was a, a completely appealing fantasy that we were like yeah absolutely i want that you know you suddenly wanted to buy cars and watches and all this kind of stuff it really sold yeah. it and um, i felt overall like the, the them trying to update women or how they dealt with women has been very very rocky but they've managed to i think with this film actually done it successfully all the women made it out alive which was nice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I felt like they've kind of done that. There's one aspect which I think they've struggled with, which is sort of, um, in, I've noticed in every single one of these films, somebody says, oh, you know, the enemy, they used to be in the room with you, and now, oh, they're all in the ether, or they're all in the shadows. <laughs> they've said this every single film. Yeah. And they, it's like they haven't quite found a way to locate it, because, it, because of, I mean, that is a huge problem now, you know, so it's... Um, so yeah, the idea of of doing a period version of it, sixties, I'd, I'd be happy with. But yeah, as, as a punter, I just want the, the key elements that that you want to have a Bond film. Um, actually, speaking speaking of key elements, sorry, I just want to say uh, the theme. Uh, one thing I want to have a Bond film is the theme in the credits. What did everyone make of uh, of this one? I, I thought it, it was it was pretty low energy. I, I, I I'm not a massive fan, and I I liked the. Um, the uh, Spectre one, Sam the Smith. Sam, what's he called? Sorry, what Sam are they Smith. called? Sam Smith, thank you. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I'm sorry, Conrad. Sorry, that was such a great question, but I, I just, you, you reminded me of a thing when you were talking about that, um, you know, sort of the, the difference between enemies now and enemies historically. Um, it's, a sort of, it's a sort of adjacent problem, which is that the, the, the Bond films are incredibly British. It's a British ba- brand. But, yeah. you know, the UK is not really regarded the way it was, you know, in, in the 60s and, you know, sort of even the 70s and 80s. Um, you know, we, we, we've, we've got a global problem with that now. And it, it yeah. was a thing that re- really struck me uh, watching No Time to Die was how cool they made London and... <laughs> generally the uk look right in in a way that is increasingly uh, decreasingly tenable 
um, it, it, yeah. if if I can put it as delicately as that. That's a, I mean that's a that's a brilliant point and and yeah I mean it's one one of the reasons I, I kind of thought Skyfall really worked I know it's an anniversary story and I thought I, I I liked the fact that they kind of really dug into the whole thing about it being London and being British that whole bulldog thing twinning the Queen with M all that kind of stuff they sort of dug into it um, but yeah it's, that's a that's an excellent problem I have no idea because like that feels like because that was all tied in with the Olympics as well like that I sort of associate it with like the last time I could sort of look at a Union flag and not throw up you know yeah. it was kind of around that time and i thought oh god i did feel kind of a bit fondly about it and james bond is one of those things that you sort of feel is one of the only places i can kind of handle that um but that's a good question i really have no idea how they're gonna I, I get, I, I, again, no, not our problem. And I, I, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for interpolating it into your very very reasonable question about billy eilish <laughs> No, that's good. I feel with the the Daniel Craig era has moved away from the the Queen and country patriotism, which which is increasingly uncomfortable. Uh, you can see uh, Quantum of Solace, you know, was a follow on from Casino Royale, and there was a personal element of that for Bond. Obviously, Skyfall, it was um, you know, he's well, it was sort of M's past, and and then going to Bond's kind of family home. Then Inspector bringing in that that um, the element from his childhood of, of having known Blomfeld when when he was a kid, uh, and the same sort of thing in this one. So it's less about that sort of you know for England James yeah. type stuff uh, that, that you wouldn't put in there as much. The, the thing that slightly took me out of this film was when M realizes that you know the virus that he's helped to to develop is out there in the world, and he sort of solemnly says. I'll have to phone the Prime Minister. <laughs> You'll have to fucking find him first. He's not going to give a shit. Hey, he's gonna, he'll sit on it for weeks before he does anything. But, uh, so, yeah, it's, it's things like that, whereas, you know, in, in previous movies, it, it you know, it kind of up, it would have upped the stakes and made it seem a bit more serious, I suppose, when, when M gets a call from the Prime Minister or something. It's, uh, it's a bit more yeah. laughable. Wow. Yeah. I'm just glad we did get a for your eyes only style cameo of the prime. Could have walked out of the cinema at that point. Uh-huh. Absolutely. No, I think Bond 26 should be Bond does Brexit, and instead of all the gadgets he gets, he gets a pen knife and a potato gun from yeah. Q. He goes to drive a truck to get stuck into uh, the UK mainland from Europe. <laughs> he goes to take down Cambridge Analytica <laughs> in the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> Jesse Eisenberg is not no what yeah was he did he play Zuckerberg yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah I, I I'm the opposite to you John I preferred this theme to Sam Smith's dirge I, I was surprised about how little I'd actually heard it because obviously they, they released it back in February 2020 didn't they when the, the film was like had its second release date from November 2019 so uh, and then considering the the theme tune's been around for that long um, I hadn't heard it that often um, well then I don't really listen to those kind of radio stations um, but um, I thought if if you know, fitted in well with the titles and fitted in well with the, the concept of, of, you know, the film. You know, it, I, I don't think it's a classic Bond film like Skyfall or, uh, oh, you know, my name, yeah, which I think are the two. Chris Cornell one is fantastic. 
Oh, yeah. I saw him perform that in um, Hyde Park in London, uh, and he brought David Arnold on stage, and they had, like, a mini orchestra. So they were doing, like, The Rock, and then with the... David Arnold was conducting the mini orchestra, and it was just yeah, absolutely awesome. Yeah. yeah, I mean, that's, that's, new, that's a stunning theme. You know, the, the whole credits... The, I mean, I, sometimes I just watch just that just the title sequence just for the music and that together because it's like it's yeah. you, your heart's pounding it, by the end of it and it, and it tells the story it's wonderful yeah it's like straight out of the gate it's just an absolute statement of intent isn't it the casino royale yeah. opening credits i mean the, the, the bottom themes don't always have traction you know it's like uh, mm-hmm. i i think a lot of people would struggle to identify um all time high you know, from Octopussy, which is a thing, is a, is a song I genuinely yeah, yeah. like. And, you know, but it was made massive fun of in the uh, Seth MacFarlane film, Ted. It was like, it was like a running joke in that. Um, and, you know, and, and a lot of the, the Brosnan ones, oh, Lord, the, I, the Madonna one is is the all-time low for me. That's, that's awful, awful, isn't it? Sigmund Freud. Yeah. <laughs> So who would we like to see play Bond then in the next film? It's got to be somebody fairly... They always they, The names that are always banded around are always... People are already huge in their career, but they they pick somebody just on the cusp, don't they? Because I don't think they, they pay them very much. They don't pay them that much for the first movie on the basis that it, it's going to kind of make their career and they, you know, if they, they're going to get paid a lot more for subsequent outings as Bond so I, I think it'll be somebody and given that they only make these films about once every five years now could well be somebody that we haven't heard of at all yet yeah the um John is, is John David Washington out of Tenet isn't he I mean that he that felt very much like an audition to me and and you know really well done um well for both stars because I thought Robert yeah, Pattinson was actually really good it was the first thing I've seen him in that I'd enjoyed. Oh, that's that's so good. <laughs> um, yeah, Robert Pattinson is one of those. Wow, didn't did not see this coming. But yeah, it's like everything he does now is, is, is interesting. I, I I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm no good at, at you know. It's like it's like you know. It's like when recasting the Doctor in Doctor Who or something like that. I I genuinely have no insight because I it's like I don't pay attention to to actors and actresses and and. You know, you should no, no. Even if I had an opinion, nobody should listen to it because it's not worth anything. You know, it, it, they, they'll they'll find somebody good because they always have done. I don't think there's been a Duff Bond. I think I think no. one thing that no. Daniel Craig has done is like they. I mean, they're going to have. He's raised the game, I think, on the quality of actor, the caliber of actor. That just in terms of act, just purely on talking in terms of acting, obviously, you know, you can't touch Sean Connery for star quality. Um, but I'm going to just say that, you know, Dan, I think Daniel Craig acting wise is kind of incredible and, you know, can hold his own in long scenes with Judy Dench and the absolute, you know, top of the game. So I think whoever it is is going to be, has got to be absolutely top class acting. So I think he's, uh, Daniel Craig's been incredible. Like, even though, you know, it's, we've all got our favorite films and favorite moments and ups and downs, but he has just been absolutely fantastic yeah. like all the way through and i mean, i watched i know Mike, you watched it as well that apple documentary you know that about becoming james bond i think it's called whatever yeah and oh, you just yeah. realize what not only just the acting but what he's brought to these films you know doing all these the stunts you know suggesting directors and just dealing with fan bullshit and you know mm. all this kind of stuff he's just been 
Oh God! Do you, yeah, do you remember No Blonde Bond? Yeah, yeah. The Craig is not Bond.com, and I think that website is still yeah. going to this day. Sadly. Yeah. So as long as, as long as they're a good actor and look at good in the tux, I'm good. Yeah. I th- I think it's it's gonna be exciting because that the the way that they have been introduced. In the past, it's like you know the 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 first Connery bit at the beginning of Doctor No is fucking amazing. You know the the Timothy Dalton stuff um, at the start of Living Daylights is amazing. Pierce Brosnan at the beginning of Goldeneye, it's amazing. You know, and they 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 I'm just excited about it. You know, definitely. James Bond will return. And so will on podcast. Um, we'll be talking about series 13 of Doctor Who, Flux, coming soon to your podcatcher. In the meantime, thank you very much for listening. And thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you for having thank me. You. Thank you very much. It's been hugely enjoyable. It's been great. Uh, maybe we'll, uh, we'll reconvene in a few years' time and, and, and see where the, uh, the Bond franchise has gone. Suits me. <laughs> That's great. Well, thank you very much, and goodbye. Bye. We have on the dime in the world. Dime enough for life to unfold all the precious things love has in store.